Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today joined by Dave Prentice, Adam Jones, and Sam Carroll as we chew the fat over all the major talking points of Goodison Park. And even though there is no footy, there is always something on the Royal Blue Podcast to talk about. And again, we're back on Tuesday and discussing... The serious stuff to start with, of course, a number of ideas and theories and news lines have come out about when, if the 1920 season could be finished. And we're getting the lads' opinions uh, on that. Uh, various dates have been uh, thrown at us in the last few days. Um, so we'll discuss that. And then in the second half of today's podcast, we'll be discussing wasted talents, players who didn't fulfil their potential on the back of Adam's excellent piece about Kevin Morales this week. Uh, I wanted to get everybody's thoughts on players who didn't quite live up to expectations. Um, but chaps, we'll, st- we'll start with with the, the, the serious stuff, if you like, and, and various theories about, about football coming back and when and if it will. What we know for certain, of course, is all football in the Premier League suspended until at least April 30th. Another meeting on Friday of Premier League teams, um, which would likely, or we're expecting to see further extension of that. Um, so when do we think appreciate it's it's an opinion maybe but rather than based on anything sort of tangible but when do we think Premier League games it will be safe for Premier League games to be played again Prenna? Oh gosh it's a it's a hell of a difficult question to answer we, we don't know when it's going to be safe we can only be guided by the government figures by you know sort of when the coronavirus pandemic peaks and then you know sort of dips down the other side and we're reliably told that you know figures in England are a couple of weeks behind those in Italy and in Spain. Uh, so I think any time before June looks very, very optimistic at best. Um, personally, I believe that the, the Premier League season does have to be finished. I mean, I know legally it needs to be because of the huge sums of money involved, uh, because of the potential for lawsuits and who knows what. Uh, but I just think morally, you know, to actually get where we've got to in a season, uh, and I know there's a lot of banter flying around about, you know, sort of Blues fans having a laugh at, you know, sort of their red counterparts saying that their uh, long craved for, you know, sort of moments of coronation is going to be denied them. Uh, I, I don't go along with that. I think morally we do have to finish the season, you know, whether it be behind closed doors or not. Um, but when that will be, I, I think we're not going to see any kind of football played until until June at the earliest, it might not even be beyond that. You know, it's a, it's such a difficult one to answer. We can only be guided, like I say, by uh, what we're hearing from the government at the moment. And at the moment, the pandemic is far from even reaching its peak. It's still climbing all the time. Adam, um, UEFA President Alexander Seferin this week had said, if games aren't uh, resumed by June, we run the risk of losing seasons. Um, that was that was the first part of what he said. Do you, would you agree with that? Uh, possibly, I think you, you run the risk of then running into too far into next season, especially if you. It might be fine starting the season a couple of weeks late, maybe, but if you starting the next season a couple of months late, uh, even potentially into the next calendar year, then you're 
potentially creating a lot of problems down the line. Obviously, we've got a Winter World Cup to try and deal with uh, coming up in 2022. We've got the Euros, which have now been scheduled for next summer. So surely you've got to presume that next season has got to finish before the Euros kick in. So there's a lot of, I, th- I think it's more international stuff that you've got to consider if you're going to be uh, saying that, you know, you might lose seasons, depending on how far you go. I think probably I'd agree with Preno. I I, I, I think that despite the fact that you might lose out on next season, I think the pr- priority really should just be to finish this season. But it was interesting reading Michael Ball's column. And I think he hit the nail on the head, really, that, you know, football is, you know, quite rightly trying to meet and consider, you know, what's going to happen for them in the future. But there's there's not really any room for these discussions at the minute. You know, the, I think we are all bound by the government's advice and, you know, what's going on, not just in the UK, but around the continent and around the world as well. There's no use the Premier League trying to start up again if, you know, Italy can't start up or La Liga can't start up because then you've got, you know, European competitions to try and deal with as well. And it just creates a, a whole load of new problems down the line. So I think in the English game has got to be, you know, kind of lumped in with the European game as well, really, in that sort of sense. So when you when you're talking about when when football might come back, you've got to think about when society in general might come back. And at the minute, as as Preno said, you know, it it only seems to be getting worse and worse from this point. Still, it doesn't it doesn't seem like we've flattened the curve as of yet, anyway. So until that happens, and until we start seeing. You know, the number of cases start to decrease and, you know, the the pressure on the NHS start to lift, you know, quite significantly, then, you know, there's a little hope that football will be coming back in the near future anyway. Sam, <coughs> Sam, the um, one of the government's chief sort of scientific and medical advisors over the weekend has suggested that it could potentially be six months before the country gets back to normal. Uh, which would take it into October. Um, do you think that the Premier League would authorities and the clubs would wait to restart the season until October? And do you think that's the right thing? I suppose it's like what Adam says, isn't it? If if, if you can't do it because there's more important aspects than, than getting games of football back on, then it's what you've kind of got to do. So we are just bound to, to waiting to see what happens and, and seeing the latest updates. And obviously the, the six-month thing, I think, was more of a an estimate of, of how it could be and but at the same time that that's the way it could be and I think then it comes round to Adam's point that this season takes priority. You've you've got to finish this season whether it's um whether it's next month or it's October or it's February, you know, it's it's kinda of just gotta go on and then and then you can come up with solutions, you know, coming up for solutions for a season that hasn't started is a lot easier than coming up for solutions for a season that, you know, is twenty nine, thirty matches in, isn't it? So mm. You know, it's a it's a strange proposition to think about. You know, it's felt weird enough, hasn't it? Without no football, I don't think it's quite felt like a pre-season almost. It's, I, I don't even know what it felt like. It just kind of felt like <laughs> one long weekend, hasn't it? Of kind a of very long weekend and no matches. And <laughs> even remembering that Chelsea game now feels a long, long time ago. So, you know, if we what a game to finish on for Evan as well. And if we have to, if we have to wait until October, then. We have to wait, don't we? There's, you know, as everyone said, there's, there's more. Although you know, we're sat here talking predominantly about the football, and that's still fine in this time. I still think everyone accepts that there's more important things. So we've just got to sit tight, haven't we? We hope that everyone keeps themselves in in good nick. You know, Everton released a pretty interesting update today about the the regimes the players are on. So all we can kind of do is speculate at this moment. 
And if you're absolutely desperate for a football fix at the moment, there is football taking place in Europe. I had to write about it yesterday. It's bizarre. Belarus. Belarus. Um, I mean, they are the one country that seems to have booked the trend. They've had 92 cases of coronavirus, and their president believes that it's uh, a good idea to continue with their football program. Uh, and a couple of teams that we wouldn't say familiar with, but Basse Borisov, everyone. Yeah, of them. course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my. Well, I didn't realize this till yesterday, but they are Belarusian legends. They've won, I think, 13 of the last 14 league titles taken over from Dynamo <laughs> Minsk. But they're not the current reigning champions. Dynamo Brest pipped them to the title last year in an absolute upset. But they're playing at the moment. Uh, <laughs> there are, I think two or three games into the season. It's a summer league in Belarus, Belarusia. And whether or Belarus, but whether that will continue, you know, so into the future, who knows? But it's bizarre that people are actually tuning into Belarusian football <laughs> now because they're desperate to get some kind of fix. I've always God. been a Minsk fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, uh, Adam and Sam. Can you name any of the Belarusian teams? I've got one, Gommel. Gommel? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to remember, was Batty Borisov the one where they beat us 1-0 at Goodison and Carlo Nassi? Yeah. Cold, the coldest night Coldest night I can ever remember. I think it's yeah. the, coldest, the coldest night on record, I think. <laughs> Absolutely horrible. Because um, they didn't make a, a Krasnodar, Krasnodar, are they Russian? Uh, Russian. They're, they're just Russian. They're just Russian. Yeah, there was yeah. only what there was only one team that was part of the old Soviet state, uh, Dynamo Minsk, that actually went into the Belarusian league when it was created in 1992, and uh, they won, I think, the first half a dozen leagues. Then Basse Borisov got their act together, and then the pair of them have dominated it pretty since. Although there was a big derby last weekend, and FC Minsk beat Dynamo Minsk, and so they're currently <laughs> top of the league. When's the when's the Belarusian footy podcast starting from? <laughs> We're doing it now this year. <laughs> Royal Belarus, yeah. Um, just getting back to, to to what we were we before we deviated off there. Um, I'm not sure if any of you guys picked up on on the interview that Carlo Ancelotti gave over the weekend to the to an Italian newspaper. He said some interesting things. Um, Preno about he doesn't actually believe that football financially will be the same once we've come out of this. And he's talking about major change and TV rights going down, player salaries going down, everything being being altered by, by what's happened. It was very, very interesting. I mean, he also spoke about uh, how often he speaks to Jurgen Klopp, which uh, surprised me a little. And, uh, you know, saying that Klopp believes that the decision to play that Atletico Madrid game was pretty much a scandal and you know so and he agrees also so it does underline you know how there are much bigger things at play than you know so a game of football uh, but he's absolutely right i mean uh, the world has changed as a result i mean adam was talking before about uh, six months before society gets back to something approaching normality and uh, football is going to be absolutely the same uh, we've already heard about um, some football clubs on the continent uh, not paying their players for the next two or three months. This is some of the bigger clubs. I mean, admittedly, footballers in the modern world can afford that kind of, you know, sort of break in their uh, in, in their salaries. But it will change. You know, so players are going to be paid less. Uh, we don't know what's going to be happening with the TV rights uh, because obviously the TV rights they they've had the product interrupted uh, through, you know, so no fault of their own. They're going to look to renegotiate. The whole landscape's going to change. We could be in for a very, very interesting stroke, turbulent time in uh, the football landscape. And yet yeah, things could be very, very different very soon. Adam, um, I expect that, you know, sorry, is the expectation that, that Friday's Premier League meeting might shed a little bit, little bit more light on this. Um, do you think that wage deferrals or pay cuts or pay freezes for, for players is inevitable 
in the Premier League now. We've seen it at Juventus, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, um, mm. Dortmund, I think, um, mm. have all taken a, a stand, if you like. Do you, do you think that it's coming to England now? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, the longer that a situation like this goes on, you, you know, I think sometimes it's a little bit easier to, to forget that a football club isn't just, you know, the owners and the players, but it's the absolute multitude of staff that they have on their books as well. And these kind of staff are going to be off work now and they're not going to be on the same amount of pay that, you know, the likes of the players are on at Everton. So if it, if it's a potential choice between, you know, making sure the staff are well paid and keeping them going until football starts again or keeping the players fully paid and maybe putting the staff on the furlough pay, then I think it's got to be really that the players take a little bit of a sacrifice in that sort of situation. Uh, because you know the, the staff are so important to the crucial to Everton, and I think Everton do realise that as well. And I think probably the work in the community that Everton have done over the last couple of weeks, you know, exemplifies exactly what Everton are about as a club off the pitch. You know, we we tend to tap into these situations a lot better or a lot quicker than any other club in the country. So yeah, I, th- I think it's probably it, it it's probably going to be coming that Premier League sides are going to see you know, their players have a, some, some sort of wage deferrals or wage cuts and I don't think any, any fans are going to be arguing with that to be honest. No, absolutely. Um, Sam, before I come to you, we're going, to, we're going to move on to the second part of the podcast so we're going to stay with Adam. Adam, just explain to the listeners who may not have caught up with your piece about Morales, um, what prompted it and, and what was the sort of <clears throat> the, the, the thrust of your point? And then I'll get Sam to, uh, to, to take, take the discussion on. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast. So yesterday was the uh, anniversary of Kevin Morales scoring that amazing solo goal against Stoke where he uh, picked up the ball in his own half from a Tim Howard punch. Uh, I think he beat Stephen and Zonzi first, and then he turned Mark Wilson inside out, slotted it underneath uh, Begovic. You know, really, really good goal. And that was, you know, he'd just come back from a little bit of an injury hit spell in his first season in Everton. And I remember I was in the stands after that game, and then a week later he scored a similarly very good solo goal against Spurs away from home. Mm. And there was a certain amount of excitement then thinking, all right, okay, if he can get a good run of games behind him, he's got some quality here. He could be the man to push us forward. I think Howard Kendall wrote in his Echo column even that, you know, he could be an important player for Everton in the future, you know, in the the fight for Europe and stuff like that. So quite big praise from Morales at that point. And he just kind of never lived up to the hype. I think in the 13-14 season, that was his best return. He got nine goals and seven assists in the league. But from that point on, it was just, you know, little spells of form here and there. He mm. showed little glimpses of that little genius that he uh, that he could offer. But it was just a little bit marred with controversy. You know, he had that penalty incident with Baines. He had uh, <laughs> that time when he came, came off the bench against Swansea. And two minutes later, he got sent off. Uh, he had that training ground incident, of course, as well, uh, which involved Morgan Schneidlin, which he ended up coming out and apologising for on social media. So, yeah, that that kind of dominated the latter stages of his career rather than, you know, the the kind of genius that we first got a real glimpse of uh, on this day. Well, on yesterday, seven years ago. He, he very much was uh, an on-his-day player, wasn't he? Because on his day, 
he could be terrific. The problem was his day never arrived very often, did it? It was oh, one yeah. in one in ten type of thing. So so on that theme, um, Sam, can you can you give us an idea of players? You know, when I said to you earlier, you know, players who never filled their fulfilled their potential, you know, wasted talents or, or didn't live up to expectations. Who would you think of? I try to, you know, there's the obvious candidates like like, like Kevin and Jack Rodwell was another one, but, you know, we did kind of sell them. But Sam two... Carroll, no? I said to Phil, don't encourage him. <laughs> That's a different mm-hmm. podcast for a different time. Um, but no, I was thinking, obviously it doesn't affect us too much now because we've we've managed to sign Luca Dean and, and replace Leighton Baines quite effectively. But, you know, there, there wasn't too much concern at, at one point, you know, when we, we had Baines, Oviedo, and then we also had Luke Garbutt and, and, and Brendan yeah. Galloway coming through the ranks. And I think both of them, um, you know, obviously we, we handed both five-year contracts, which haven't quite worked out uh, for either of them. But, you know, it's, it's, it's quite... I remember Galloway, you know, when we sent him out on loan, to West Brom for that season was really meant to be the season he got to grips with a full season of Premier League football away from Goodison and he'd come back you know a bit more of a, a rad article and, and that didn't work out and then I remember him coming back and played an under-23s game he played centre-half and obviously you know me I don't often give too high praise but I remember saying to me dad he's like Rio Ferdinand yeah. so, <laughs> maybe overstated that one a little bit when I'm to Sunderland got relegated and uh, ever let him let him leave on a free transfer a year early in the summer. And I looked the other day; he's, he's played in one of uh, he's been in the squad for one of uh, Luton's last fifteen matches. Last time he featured was at left back in a seven nil loss at Brentford. So not did quite all goals come down the other side though? What's I <laughs> did, did all their goals come down the other side? <laughs> <laughs> all seven down the right, and yeah. and Garbutt a little bit the same, isn't it? You know, out on Ipswich now to purely to see his contract up. I think he's. He, he certainly started off well at Ipswich, but I think we all seen those few European games that he got under Martinez. You know, looked a real talent. I've seen him score a few worldies for the under twenty three. He's got a got a, an absolute whip of a left foot on him, but it's always been questions over his over his defending. So I think both of them would would have been nice to see at least one of them kick on, and if not, get into Everton's first team of of being able to command some kind of sell on fee. But yeah, there's obviously been a few young lads over the years who who haven't quite lived up to that. Yeah, Garbutt's a good one. Preno, any thoughts? Wow, yeah. Where do you want to start? Uh, I could go back legions of them, way <laughs> back to the uh, the Martin Murray days back in the uh, mid-1970s. Now, there's, there's some obvious high-profile ones. I mean, Michael Branch uh, was a young striker that we genuinely thought uh, was going to tear up the Premier League, so much so that one of my colleagues at the time, uh, Paul Joyce, who used to work at the, uh, the Post in Echo, had a bet with our Liverpool correspondent, Chris Bascom, as to who was going to score the most league goals. Liverpool's bright young thing, Michael Owen, or ever since bright young thing, <laughs> Michael Branch. We, 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 know, we, know, we know which way that ended up. And uh-huh, then uh, no. not, not too long after that, obviously Danny Kadamartri uh, was another youngster who absolutely exploded onto the scene. I think it was five goals in his first seven games, including again, you know, sort of a wonderful goal in a Merseyside derby. Uh, we thought he was going to hit the heights and that never really, you know, sort of played out. But the one that shines out for me absolutely stands out, you know, like an absolute star was uh, Billy Kenny, who everybody, you know, saw in the early 90s thought was going to be an absolute midfield general for Everson. He played in a Merseyside derby at Goodison. Uh, Everson came from behind to win 2-1 and he was so good that day that Howard Candle immediately gave him a new contract uh, straight after the game. I think he was only 18 at the time. 
And then it's been written many, many times. Obviously, you know, so drugs uh, were a major issue in his life. And uh, Everton gave him so many opportunities uh, to try and basically revive his standing. Colin Harvey worked so hard with him going around to his house, you know, so trying to drag him to the training ground, basically. And it just never worked. Unfortunately, he was in the grip of something, you know, very, very sinister. Uh, he ended up being sacked. Uh, Colin basically gave him another chance again back at Oldham Athletic and tried again, you know, sort of try and revive his career. That never worked. And uh, I bumped into him in town, oh gosh, only a few years, you know, so after he'd left Everton. And he, he sort of half admitted that, you know, so he'd, he'd screwed it all up and fouled it all up, but didn't really seem to be that regretful about the whole thing. Uh, but to me, it was just a great, great potential that, you know, so sadly went by the wayside. Um, he could have been an international footballer. He could have been, you know, so running the or pulling the strings in Emerson's midfield for a long, long time, and tragically, it never really uh, manifested itself. So yeah, there's there's lots, you know, so sort of players that you think that you know so sort of could be, you know, so sort of the next big thing, and sadly, don't turn out to be the case. To go back to where we started with Kevin Morales, uh, I always think that, I, I always think the turning point, you know, so sort of for him was uh, another Merseyside derby when he was absolutely dominating, running rings around Liverpool. Uh, Andre Wisdom uh, was having an absolutely torrid time against him. And then it was Luis Suarez that uh, basically raked his studs down the back of his Achilles and uh, he had to go off injured. And that was almost the, the start of like the, uh, the dip, I thought, for Kevin Morales. Uh, but yeah, there's been lots and lots of uh, nearly might have been, you know, so Everton you know, stories. But I think Billy Kenny, for me, is the, uh, is the most tragic, really. Had any... Uh... You've you've been shown uh, Billy Kenny. Any uh, any improvement on that? Well, it, it kind of depends what kind of criteria you want to use, doesn't it? Because oh, let's not get complicated, Ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of Morales, obviously he showed like glimpses of the quality that he had, but just not on a consistent enough basis. And I think mm. there's so many Everton players that can fall into that bracket. I'd argue Ross Barkley probably falls into that bracket, and say he's. The most high-profile one in recent years, you know, we could just never seem to get a consistent, I'd say, even a run of ten games out of Ross Barkley. You know, he always he's always like okay for a few, and then brilliant for a few, and then you know, missing in a couple. I'd argue Gerard Delafeu was probably similar, especially in his second spell at Everton, uh, when you know it didn't look like he could play a whole ninety minutes for Everton, let alone put a decent run of games together. Morgan Schneidlin, uh, you could say, you know, he's shown glimpses of form, hasn't really lived up to his price tag. Even going a little bit further back, like the one, the one that I seem most disappointed with of like my time growing up at Everton was when we signed James Beattie, and we signed him for a club record fee, and he was absolutely banging the goals in for Southampton. And I remember when we signed him, I was thinking, we've got a proper quality striker on our hands here, and it just never really never really materialised. Again, he showed glimpses of it. And remember, he scored a really good goal against Fulham. Was it that little chip from outside yeah. the box? That was a class goal. And, you know, that goal against Arsenal as well, where he showed his tenacity to break through the defence. You know, little moments like that make you, make you think, oh, James Beattie's got something about him. But the, the rest of it just didn't really materialise. So, yeah, I think Everton have just had far too many players like that throughout, throughout their time. I think consistency is just... Something that you know, not many Everton players over the past few years, especially, have managed to uh, to grasp. Mm. What do we? Another one I would have thrown into the mix was, uh, and I'm sure a number of clubs would um, would say the same about him. But when we had George Green, 
you know, yeah, from yeah. Bradford, and of course, you know, his well documented issues off the field have obviously played a big part in him not fulfilling his potential. But I think we all we all thought at the time he's come to Everton, David Moyes, etc., and that framework and that and that team around him would would get him back on the straight and narrow and see him fulfil what clearly is a lot of potential. But sadly, it never mm. it never happened. I remember there was no go on. All three of us just went at once. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously all got sparks of uh, you know inspiration <laughs> at the same time. There's been a few little strange ones that you know have been like fleeting glimpses on the Everton firmament, but Scotland Mustafi was always the odd one mm. for me, <clears throat> who you know so eventually ended up playing in the World Cup finals and uh, you know so representing Germany quite you know so quite proudly. And I think he played one game for Everton, didn't he? Going back to Belarusian football again against the uh, against Basse Barisov. <laughs> So, you know, yeah. why didn't that happen? You know, so why did he not make it at Everson yet? You know, so make it elsewhere. There's so many, you know, sort of criteria that, you know, sort of contribute to a footballer being able to make it a particular <clears> football <throat> club. And that was one that always, like, left me scratching my head a little bit. So, sorry to butt in. You know, Sam, <laughs> you both go on. No, no Sam, I, was go gonna, on I, I was just going to say on George Green, when he, I think he scored that, he scored a pretty good goal, didn't he, on his, on his Tramia debut. And yeah. again, I think I was like, We've got the next Pele here, boys. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you to get carried away. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't at all. And then, um, yeah, it didn't didn't quite work out. And I think last I seen, he was at he was at Chester, wasn't he, in the, in the National League North? So hopefully he can um, he can build his his career. But as Prem said as well, I think you could make it. You can make a pretty decent team out of kind of players who've played forever and and moved on at the moment, can't you? I think you. I mean, you've got Shane Duffy, Eric Deer. Shikodron Mustafi, that, that makes a pretty good back line. There must be a decent 11 kind of playing the trade out there in the Championship, Premiership, who would probably give the R Everton team a game sometimes. <laughs> well, where do we class in this discussion? And Sam mentioned him earlier on, um, Rodwell. Do you, was it a case that Everton never saw the best of Rodwell in his time at the club? Or would that have come and we just had to sell him anyway? And, and his career has... Has, has gone the way it has for other reasons. I blame Martin Atkinson. Um, <laughs> we all do for everything. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember Rodwell breaking through at the time and uh, being a really, really exciting young footballer. And nobody quite knew what his best position was going to be, mm. whether it was going to be. It was suggested that centre-half might be his best position, uh, you know, a la Rio Ferdinand. And uh, David Moyes never, ever, you know, sort of dismissed that. But it always appeared that centre midfield was going to be, you know, so his best position, and that's where he was absolutely flourishing until that derby match um, when Martin Atkinson decided that, you know, he fouled Luis Suarez. Clearly, he hadn't. You know, clearly Luis Suarez dived, and it was actually rescinded the decision later on, uh, the decision to actually suspend him. But to me, he changed a little as a result of that. I mean, whether that's just me being a little bit, you know, reading too much into it. But he almost seemed to become a little bit less spiky, a little bit less aggressive as a result of that. Whether it did affect him psychologically, I don't know. Whether it did change his game, couldn't have changed it that much because you know, so clearly Manchester City thought it was still worthwhile spending however much it was, twelve million quid, was it? It was a lot mm. of money uh, to take him to Man City, and um, he actually got his England call up around about that time and did very well too. I think he played really well against Spain. Yes. He had an appearance against Sweden, you know, so we looked okay as well. So things were going in the right direction. And then for whatever reason, I don't know, his form just fell off a cliff. And then we had that really unsavoury situation up at Sunderland. Uh, it was revived briefly at Blackburn. Uh, was it only about uh, six, seven months ago? And whether he's still there, I'm not so sure now. But yeah, his, his career yeah, did just absolutely nosedive. Sorry? 
Sheffield United. He's back is that really is? Yeah, yeah. So his, his career just seemed to, you know, sort of flatline. And quite why that is, I don't know. Um, but yeah, for me, it all goes back to when Martin Atkinson wrongly showed him a red card. I always <laughs> feel like it was definitely a, a psychological thing. I almost felt like he was a he was a confidence player. And I think the only position you can ever really get away with being a confidence player is is a striker. I don't think a, a centre midfielder, you know, especially in the role City tried to deploy him in, which was that kind of like deep lying, uh, deep lying role. I don't think you can be like that. And, and it felt like if he was having a good game, he'd have a really good game and really kind of control the midfield and he'd look, look dangerous at both ends almost. And, and But when he wasn't, I think especially at City, he, he was just anonymous too much. And it seems that has haunted him kind of throughout his career and, and obviously he had you know those problems at Sunderland and when they were trying to get rid of him and, and all that stuff. And it's sad really when you think that it's just horrible the position these young footballers get put in sometimes in that, you know, even as an Evertonian that wants to always keep hold of our best players for as long as we can, you you couldn't have turned down City at that point with with the money they were offering uh, in in terms of wages, and I think we got a, a reasonable a reasonable deal for them. But at the same time, now obviously you know hindsight is always twenty twenty, and you think another couple of years at Everton could have could have helped them, and you know we could still be here now and, and be our captain and, and be a key player. But you know it just did feel like as Preno said the. It just took a complete nosedive, and even though now he is still by name playing in the Premier League, how much of him will realistically see before the end of his career? A very much kind of question. I remember, remember a game when we played City away. To, I think it was 2011, maybe at the Etihad, and, and Moyes gave Broadwell the job of man marking David Silver, and for about 65 pushing 70 minutes, he'd done it brilliantly, and then all of a sudden. Silver got away from him and I think set up the first goal and then that was it and then City won 2-0 it just kind of you know I think I think that kind of for me is always kind of sort of summed up that that confusion over Rodwell he, he was playing in midfield and, and did a great job for 65-70 minutes but then couldn't quite sustain it and then was he going to be good enough to be centre-half I don't know I think he was caught in between in two areas of the field really Mm. Yeah, what what, what was he? Do we know? Yeah, sorry, that's, that's the thing. I don't know. I, what? Yeah, what is he? What was he? It's a bit, a bit the same with Ross Barkley, isn't he? What's his best position? Yeah, I think it's a bit strange with Rodwell because I think it, it, it's essentially it just boiled down to it being the wrong move at the wrong time. Like, I don't, I don't think any party could have turned down the situation at that time. You know, Rodwell was going to be joining Man City. You've, you know, we all know kind of success they've all went on to have Man City sort of good young English player that they wanted mm-hmm. and Everton were going to get a decent amount of money for it I think the move worked for all parties at the time but obviously you know if you were to offer that situation back to Rodwell now I'm pretty sure he'd probably say yeah it's probably not the right move for me and I think if he had stayed at Everton then he might have realized what his best position was in that in that period of time I still think that he probably would have been better as a ball playing sort of center back if he'd have been a little well, bit more in the in the John Stone sort of mould, well, perhaps. I was just about to say, sliding doors and all that, and Roberto Martinez arrived at the football club not long after. He would have surely seen Rodwell as a Stones prototype style player, wouldn't he? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that could have that could have been perfect for him, you know. And as as Sam said, it's it's always nice to look back at things in hindsight like that. But yeah, it, it's such a shame for Rodwell because obviously he did have some some talent you know he scored that goal against Manchester United you know late on in that game where he just burst through the midfield you know I remember he scored a couple of long range goals as well which were absolutely phenomenal 
So, you know, he had so much talent about him. And it, it is a real shame that it just didn't work out for him at Mad City. And obviously that's had an effect later in his career as well. But, you know, I, I think as as we've proven here, he's, he's only one in a long line of Everton players who, you know, just can't quite find... I think consistency is the key word. Like, just can't quite find that consistency, you know. I think the best players that we've had over the last few years, you know, you like some of your Cahills, Artetas, Baineses, mm. etc. You know, they've always had the quality, but they've consistently shown that quality as well. And even when they're off their game, let's say, they're still they're still playing a, a very high level. Whereas, you know, you've had a lot of these players just just can't really replicate that. It's funny actually, just talking about him then, another one came to mind. You say about this long, long list. And uh, another one that we got a lot of money for, another player. That, and I think he might even have won a title medal after he left Everton, uh, but never really featured. And that was Francis Jeffers, mm. who uh, burst through you know, as part of the FA Youth uh, Cup final side of the late 90s, early noughties. And uh, when he started playing for the senior side under Walter Smith, looked like an absolute you know, sort of sensational young striker in the making. Um, absolutely really intelligent inside forwards, if you like, you know, sort of great runs, good finisher. So much so that, you know, Arsene Wenger deemed him his fox in the box that his Arsenal side was missing and gave Everson eight million quid. And it just never, never worked out for him there. Uh, eventually we brought him back and it was never quite the same. You know, so when he came back, I think he might have scored one or two goals, maybe, you know, in his second coming. And then and again, fell out spectacularly with the manager, did he not, Brenner? <laughs> several times, yeah, uh, and and did ended up, you know, sort of going down the leagues and you know, sort of having you know, sort of numerous football clubs. Fortunately, he's back at the football club now and is uh, and is doing a good job, you know, so as part of the uh, the youth setup, helping to coach, you know, so a legion of young footballers now. But it's an, yet another case of what might have been, and uh, I think that one went wrong because you know, so he got a move possibly before he was ready for it. He'd just broken into the England setup. I actually went down to where uh, to Upton Park when Wayne Rooney uh, made his England debut that night, and Franny actually scored uh, against mm. Australia. Uh, England, uh, I, th- I don't think England lost three uh, one to Australia. It was a strange night that one, uh, but Franny scored the goal and looked like you know, so along with Rooney, you know, so this incredible you know, so strike force at Everton we're going to have that would dominate the uh, football for the next decade. Well, we know what happened. Uh, another case of what might have been. I think it's, you know, we say it sometimes, don't we, Phil, when uh, you, we're in the office on a Saturday and Everton are playing, you've got Soccer Saturday on and, you know, it's not even just the names that you kind of remember and, and, and had, like, you know, a, a, a career in the game in, in the top flight. You know, every every weekend, you know, from your Hallam Hopes to your mm-hmm. Hope Akpans and Adam Davies and Anthony Robinson, who, who nearly got a move to AC Milan. You know, it's, it's it isn't really when you think of the, the sheer volume you know, if you think Everton have teams from under seven, under six, under seven upwards, you know, full full squads of players, the the amount of lads out there currently playing in the football league and, and even non-league that have, have represented Everton at, at some capacity. There's, you know, you could you could probably write write a book, and there must be some some brilliant kind of stories out there. Absolutely. Good stuff. Um, we will end today's pod there. We will uh, reconvene on Friday. Um, and uh, if anybody listening, of course, uh, if you've got any uh, alternatives to the the list of uh, unfulfilled talents or, or wasted talents that we've been discussing, uh, you know how to get in touch with us uh, on social media, email, of course, and, and let us know your thoughts. And uh, we can uh, we can read them out on Friday's pod. Um, chaps, thanks for your company. Good to see some uh, some faces other than uh, the ones <laughs> that I'm seeing every day. So uh, stay safe and. Uh, 
Thank you all very much for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.